So, um, I was talking about how I've, you know, been just kind of shifting my practice and really focusing on staying in my body and staying in my body on the cushion and also just going about my business and how, how much I'm noticing how much I wasn't in my body. That's a really important thing to notice. You know, that's wonderful. I mean, it's not wonderful that you're not in your body. It's wonderful that you're noticing. Yeah. What did you mean when you said body body scanning? Well, there's types of um, kind of uh, directed meditation, or, or uh, when you're listening to somebody, and you can do it on your own as well. But um, like a guided meditation, where you're using your awareness and scanning through your whole body in a very detailed way. It's just sort of what you were talking about. The other night. That's what I did. We did a body scan the other night. Yeah. So it uh, helps you to be caught. It's a very useful practice for being in body. I mean, your body's always in the present moment. Your body's here. It's your mind that goes off into the past and future. So and just like the breath, the fact that the body's always here is very important. And, um, and energetically, there's certain practices, like concentration practices, that can build a lot of energy. Sweeping, sweeping or body scanning meditations keep the energy really balanced, which can be important if you're doing those kind of concentration practices. And it can be very healing as well. It's really getting into our body. When we're, when we're disconnected, when we're kind of disembodied, disassociated in our head, um, there might be all kinds of things in the body that are kind of stuck. You can kind of use that maybe as a way to find injury or whatever even physical or is it more no it's more like the accumulations that are that are in our body from our lives and past karma toxins and so forth well we basically whatever's going on in our mind is reflected in our body and that kind of manifests as contractions tensions holdings and so everything's like solidified and as the mind starts to relax the body can start to relax especially if we can really be there mindfulness of the body and there's all kinds of constrictions and holdings and pains and wounds, energetic wounds and, and everything that they we're all holding in our body, all the griefs and uh, pains and emotional scars and everything. Anything that's remotely traumatic in our lives is kind of stored in there, or can often be stored in there. And one of the processes that happens in meditation is one of purification and it's partly in the body, or a large part in the body. So, I mean, I've certainly seen that in my meditation where there'll be old hurts and wounds and grief and pain, emotional pain, and, and uh, it's released. And the mind, the ego, and everything is like holding all that in there. You don't even know it. You don't even feel it. But through meditation practice, at some point, very naturally, very organically, um, those things can start to come can start to release. It's an energetic release. And so in that sense, it's a very healing, um, opening process. And then once, when that, as the body becomes more open, um, more healed, then you start to get a sense of how much those things that were stored in you were affecting you on a day-to-day basis. But you didn't really even know it because it was like a fish in the water. You know? So what's water? Right? I don't know. It doesn't know. It's like that. It's only when it's gone that you start to notice what impact it was really having on your, on your mind and your heart. So the body is actually very, very large.
Fool is somebody who um, supports you to do things which are unwholesome, encourages you to do things which are unwholesome, doesn't encourage you to do things which are wholesome. You know, so, you know, hanging out with the wrong set of friends can really have quite an impact. Absolutely. just wondering about that particular, you know, translation, I don't know what the Pali word was. But. You know, people who don't have integrity. You know, the longing to belong is so strong. It's just so incredibly strong that when we hang out around people who don't have good integrity, you know, our longing, our longing for a friendship um, would mean sometimes that we would compromise our integrity in order to have the friendship. Yeah, I've seen that in my own life, like situations. I mean, nothing horrible as far mm-hmm. as that goes, but just changes in behavior and attitudes and speech. You just watch it come more. Right. You know. yeah. <laughs> What I've seen in communities is that, you know, two people who don't necessarily have a strong connection or can actually be antagonistic with each other can really bond around some kind of real negativity they have for a third person. You know, it's so unskillful. (laughs) But the longing to bond, especially if you've been at odds with each other, is really strong. So one has to navigate these things in a way that one's not engaging in stuff which is unskillful. Part of my path, we say that we may have to get a new playground. Mm -hmm. But that also when we start to get some ground to stand on, that we can go back sometimes to the old playground to share with people. You do, but you need to have ground because mm-hmm. when you get back into yeah. relationships with other people, the pattern is mm-hmm. is to move back into the same ways of relating. I, I like calling them fools. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you have to have this. You know, there's nothing with wrong with fools if you can not become a fool yourself when you're hanging out. With right. them. I mean, we had they, these people were not fools, but we had. You know, we learned that that there was. Um, there was a, 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 a certain amount of people who had mental uh, disturbances or illnesses who were interested in coming and hanging out in the monastery. Mm-hmm. And it was actually healthy for them to do that. But we need to do it in proportion to what we could manage. You know, because you have too many people who've got high level of needs or high level of maintenance, then mm-hmm. it's stressful for the community. But it's also, you know, it's lovely that people can come, you know, and in various different sizes and shapes and, and, and benefit from being able to be there. They weren't fools, but still there was a sense of, yeah, well, this is different. It needs more time and care, and, you know, it's helpful to a certain degree, but we need to have some boundaries around it. It worked. And then when we got overextended, we could tell, this is too much and we're all worn out. Interesting to reflect on my speech and especially idle chatter. And I have a similar list that I've read that what constitutes idle chatter is so extensive. It's incredibly extensive. It almost eliminates it just about I mean, a lot, a lot of conversations. I mean, I've heard teachers talk about, you know, taking on practices of not talking about anybody who's not present, not talking about anything in the past or the future. And that if you have those two things, it's like... Like eighty percent of conversations are dead. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. 
you know, so really working with right speech in a very deliberate way, a lot of stuff just falls off. But what we also have to be careful about, and that's something which really needs some skill, is, is that in an Asian context where these teachings came from, that was a society where people had a very deep sense of belonging and they were deeply embedded in relational fields, both with the family and the village and the clan and the caste and all of that. So their belonging was tightly woven and all around them. So practices of solitude and practices of right speech, which eliminate 90% of what you're talking about and all the rest of that, would have a very um, specific and skillful way of reflecting attention on the practice. We are in a society where our sense of belonging and our sense of relational field has been shredded and almost totally dismantled. And so when we are working with strong practices of of solitude and strong practices of right speech, we need to be careful that it doesn't further dismantle the community field that we actually need to develop in order to get a little bit more ground to do the practice. And so, so what you're saying is the Asians, because they had such a feeling of fellowship to start with, could go inward but still feel they had this belonging. They came from a, a, an embedded sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. And I don't know anybody yeah. who has that in this society. Yeah, the Denver so, Broncos don't give you that. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so we actually need to cultivate community. And in cultivating community, part of that is hanging out with each other and talking. You know, and if you eliminate 90% of what's possible to talk about, you know, with most people, it, it starts to erode um, a sense of ease and well-being and a sense of friendliness, which is not helpful. So we're in a cultural context and transition time in our society, which is different from where these teachings came from, and that needs to be taken into account. You know, and so rather than hold on to the teachings in a real literal way, begin to see well. You know, speech needs to be skillful, and the point is to start directing attention towards practice. But what we're also wanting to do is to create the ground that makes it possible to do the practice, and that's why I feel that we need to actually start cultivating community as a practice itself. And that's not something that you hear about in the same kind of way in the traditional teachings because that was like there that was that was that had already happened you know you're there you're a part of that so we come from a slightly different cultural context and that needs to be taken into account I would imagine that speech that is in line with right intention would probably hold us in pretty good state yeah Absolutely. And I know for myself, because, you know, part of it is, is I felt, you know, I'm not great with groups in certain contexts. You know, the, the, um, the kind of chit-chat stuff that is kind of like a social lubricant in order for people to relax, I was hopeless at that. You know, or you'd have, we'd have these different kinds of events and people would come and they'd just chit-chat and I, I was like, death. Oh, God, I hated that. 
I just hated it. But what I've learned is, is that well, people need to feel relaxed in order to be able to talk about more meaningful things and to be able to do this nonsense stuff, which has no real relevance, is, is part of what helps people relax so that they can start shifting gears into things which have more meaning. Doesn't right speech also entail what is not said? It certainly does for me, because I've suffered a lot about things that have not been said, mm-hmm. you know. And the social lubricant is a simple... I mean, that's... That could be respectful. Right. To... I'm just... I mean, I'd, I'd just soon be stoic and keep my mouth shut. But I have to learn that sometimes to share with other people, I need to... Right, and also just to be able to tune into where another person's at to help them relax. You know, to you know, things that you can talk about that are not so um, easier access. But that, I mean, as a practice, it would be really amazing to see a community of people say, all right, well, let's determine right speech for this period of time and let's figure out what the parameters are that we want to have that be and, and hold each other to it. You know? Is that a Paul? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear what you said. Yeah, he's not here. <laughs> <laughs> you should your back to him. One of his right speech practices is this. <laughs> I've seen him. <laughs> Which is pretty good. I mean, you know. That's, that's actually it's more effective than picking up the mess on the other side. <laughs> Are some of the video offenses like around? I mean, you know, they're actually, you have to, actually have to confess to the right speech. Well, video generally is a self-determining thing, you know, so you don't have any police, you know, so people are not there to watch out for other people's behavior. It's a self-reflective, it's an honor system, and people need to see it themselves. However, the kind of group ethos of a community is, is, is that if you agree to be here, you are agreeing to the video standard. And if people aren't keeping the Vinia standard, then it's within the bounds of the community to mention it and to ask people to reflect on it. So the standard is, is that, you know, we are responsible for our own behavior and we are responsible for our own training. That's kind of the bottom line. But if people are doing stuff and they're not seeing it, then it's the, it's the kindness of the community to support them to reflect on stuff that's not apparent. And that takes skill, you know, to learn to point things out to people in a way where you're just not, you know, dumping, you know, or humiliating or shaming or all of the kind of normal things that we're used to. But, you know, this you know, this is not in accordance with your aspiration or and this is not supportive of of a community relaxing and it's a peaceful way of being together. You know. And oftentimes this stuff is related to deeper things. So like what Kevin was talking about where, you know, there's old hurts and old wounds and all the rest of that. It doesn't take much. You know, you scratch the surface and it goes back into old things. You know, 
And so, you know, all of a sudden you're into territory, which is often raw in terms of, you know, where this song is meaning or landing or what it's related to. And then there's also the difference between, like, having somebody that you can confide in and say, listen, I need to speak to you. I don't want you to believe this. I don't want you to repeat this. And don't take anything I say seriously, you know. So it's basically you clear the ground where you can just go, Bleh! You don't need to speak in any kind of censored way. You can just let it all out. And then from that, then pick up pieces and reflect on it in a way where it's more skillful so that, you know, if you're speaking with somebody where it's not so tightly boundary, you can then have a little bit more skill in what you say. Because sometimes when we need to do that, we just need to offload. And that doesn't have to be, you know, our I's dotted and T's crossed and everything perfect. But we need to know what we're doing and agree beforehand that that's what we're doing with somebody who can handle it. And, you know, it's just like it does not leave this space under any circumstances. That's skillful. But you're taking complete responsibility for where you're at and you've negotiated something with somebody who can handle it. And so, you know, one of the things that I learned very, well, it didn't take me quick. I didn't learn quick. I learned slow and it was painful was is that you can't confide in everybody. You have to be careful who you confide in. Because some people cannot hold confidences, even if you negotiate confidences in the, on the onset. They can't do it. You know? So if you have thought you negotiated a confidential offloading scenario with somebody who can't hold confidences, you know, then you have to pick up the reverb on the other end when they've shared your you know, your private confidential disclosure that was uncensored in a way which then causes a chaos. Community life, you know? (laughs) You know? It's just like, well, you know, that's part of it. There's different people who've got different capacities and you have to learn how to figure out who you can trust and who you can't trust with stuff like that. And with some things, it was just like, it just would be very, I'd be exceptionally careful who I would share it with. Because if you just, you know, if any little leaking, and it could just be like dynamite. Yeah, so speech is a big topic, and, you know, a community that's willing to pick it up and work with it and, you know, and support each other in that way is, that's, that's moving towards something which is, which is really wholesome, you know. A loving community that is willing to support each other in that way is something that's really wholesome. So, what were your, you, see, you mentioned in the monastery where you were trying to really pick that up and work with it skillfully when you realized that just sitting isn't going to cut it. You mentioned you had tutors. Um, was, who, who were they? What was that about? Um, we got nonviolent communication trainees to come in and train us. And so, we picked up a model, of, a communication model and had people who were trained facilitators in that model to come and work with us. And and did that for years. And then we picked up like the the book that was referred to at the the meeting, you know, uh, a facilitator's guide for participatory decision-making. So models that help support holding a diversity of opinion and views, listening to everybody, and managing things in a way where it flows, 
that people are not slammed or shamed or cut off inappropriately. I mean, with some people you have to shut them up because they just go on forever. You know, and one has to learn how to do that in a way which is respectful and kind, but also doesn't let them monopolize the energy of the group. So picking up tool sets, skill sets, and working with it. Now that book that I got was not something that the monastery came up with, it's my mother came up with that. So she lives in a, in a, a cooperative housing community, and she, they had a trainer come in who was good, and somehow or another they got access to this resource, and I first saw a copy of it, and I thought, this is an excellent resource, it's really helpful. So I got a copy, and then when Steve was going to facilitate this last meeting, I suggested that he get a copy. And I said it would be our copy unless he thought it would be so useful for him and his group with the punks. And he thought it was excellent, so he wanted to keep it. But, you know, studying, actually learning the skill of facilitating, it's not something that we all know. And yet the more a group has those skills, then the more um, things can unfold in a way which is uh, skillful, where people's needs are met, where people can be heard, where there's a... Uh, good things happen and at the board meeting at the moment you know there's a lovely feeling and people are cooperative and there's a fairly high level of teamwork happening together but where this stuff really comes into light is when people are at differences of opinion or at each other's throats or you know major kind of emotional processes are emerging then having these kind of skills is really really helpful because it doesn't shut people up but it holds it in a way where the where the stuff that is the emotional stuff is held in check and the business stuff can continue well the whole area of right speech is very interesting to me and also uh, I just can the importance of it just resonates very strongly with me with regard to practice and just with regard to life and sure might be premature, but at some point down the road, within the monastery here, within the board, you know, it might be nice to have something structured like that, maybe through classes or something we could do together to build those skills that just help in so many ways, and just with our own practice as well. It is helpful, because <coughs> then the skills of that then flow everywhere with everyone you're dealing with, and it's just... I mean, one of the things that I found really impressive about the sisters is that after, well, however many years of blood-curdling meetings, and, I mean, we would have meetings and it would take us a week to recover. I mean, they were just, they were horrible. (laughs) They were so horrible. (laughs) And And then we learned how to do it differently. And, you know, by the time that I left, we had a a lot of people in the group who had a lot of really good skills and it was impressive and so then when stuff was coming down in terms of the politics and the heavy duty stuff that was going on and we had some meetings with the sisters and the monks the sisters were impressive you know in terms of being able to be very clear about what our needs were stay in empathetic relationship with the monks who were doing numbers and and hold the space in a way which was respectful and yet clear. It was really amazing to see the difference between 
the skill set that the sisters had learned and what the monks were up to. Well, yeah, it's good for the, the sisters as well in the sense that I mean, it cuts both ways. When somebody harms with speech, it's harming the recipient, but it's harming the, the giver too. <laughs> it hurts. Any of that stuff hurts. I certainly see that in my own practice, which is one of the many reasons why I'm interested in that area. Right, yeah. Less hurt that I'm doing to myself and others is very important to me. That's right. And you know, when you're living in community or you're in relationship or you work or whatever, you have to relate with people. And there's times when you have to negotiate stuff, which is not easy. And that's like, that comes with the package. You know? So to be able to negotiate the not easy stuff in a way that's respectful and grounded and clear and compassionate and yet honest and appropriate, you know, is the, is the manifestation of the practice in our life. You know, and so you, I would agree. You know, if the board is interested in doing workshops on this, I think that'd be great. Or if there's a group of us in the community who want to do that, I think it would be great because the more people who learn, the more the the the, the capacity increases, and then that ends up creating a a container or a field for everybody who comes into it to learn. Does yeah, that, in a, in a yeah. safer place. Exactly. It is indeed, you know, so, you know, that's why when the sisters began to see that there was a direct correlation between our skills and communication and the safety of our group, you know, it was like our motivation for learning this stuff was just, you know, this is not rocket science. Yeah, to do anything that, anything that is needed in order to create more safety is really helpful. Because when there is something, a field, that's safe and skillful and loving and responsive, it's like, my goodness, there's that, you know, the same kind of feeling that you get when your posture is aligned. Well, your whole being can have that sense of, ah, you know, I can relax into this. You know, I don't have to be on guard and watch behind my back and that there's, you know, going to be weird numbers coming at me in which way or direction. I can actually relax and trust that the right things are happening and, and that there are people who have my best interests at heart who are going to support if I need it. You know, it was... Steve has been really sick and the punks, is, you know, are his group and they've come together to help sort him out and if they hadn't if they hadn't done that there's no way he would have been able to do what he did at home because he just was really too sick to do it and one of the people who was involved in helping was saying it was just so lovely to see the amount of caring and kindness and coming forward that was happening to help you know so when you see that happening for one person you think well you know I'm in a group that does that for each other and then, and then everyone can have that sense of, well, you know, if something happens that I, I can't manage myself, I have a safety net of a group of people who I'm around or involved with who know how to do that for each other. Isn't that what the Sangha is for? That's exactly what the Sangha is for. But this, that, this fellowship and Sangha, are they... Well, the Sangha means the community of people who practice. And I think what we are needing to begin to start developing is how to develop a community that really is able to support each other to practice and what that means. 
And so I don't think it's just about coming together and sitting in silence. It's about learning where each person is at and starting to support them so that the stuff begins to hold throughout their life. You know, so it is absolutely suitable if there's a community of people practicing together that they take care of people in the group as well as have fun together and play together and hang out together. So it's not just about coming together in silence and then talking only on Dhamma, but about starting to knit a fabric that is supportive. Let's close with sharing of merits. <laughs> 